Clothes one of those things. If you, if you think about your clothes, there are human hands involved in the processes of their making. And, and this even more so if we go back a little bit. Uh, you go back to the, the 80s, the 90s in this country. Big brands, Slazenger, Country Road, Jag, New Balance, Bonds, Esprit. Chances are... Uh, that the things under those labels were, were made in this country by outworkers, uh, largely from from Vietnamese refugee backgrounds. It's a, a largely untold story uh, about the contribution of these workers to the local fashion landscape uh, until now. Uh, a, new, a new book, May Anya, Working From Home. It's a work of journalism and graphic storytelling. It is, it is a beautiful little volume and it details experience and, and history of Vietnamese garment workers from the mid-60s right up until the, the mid-2000s. Interviews, illustration, an extraordinary cast of characters and experience. It was put together by journalist Emma Doe and illustrator Kim Lam. They are the hearts and minds behind the book. They, they join us now. Emma, Kim, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi. <laughs> that was Emma on the left and Kim on the right, just in case you were you were worrying, listener. Emma, the, the the idea for this book, how did it come about? Was there was there family connection in this? No, so I didn't actually grow up in an outworker family, but my interest in it arose in around 2016 when I was writing about local fashion. And I began noticing a lot of local fashion labels posting about who made their clothes. Um, And that was an act of transparency on their behalf because they want people to know who's behind the scenes. Um, And I began noticing a lot of Vietnamese people, you know, auntie and uncle age. And I was curious because I didn't know that the Vietnamese community had been involved in fashion manufacturing. Like I didn't have a personal connection to it. And then that got me curious enough to just ask basically all of my Vietnamese friends and family, whether they perhaps knew someone who had worked in the industry before because I wanted to know more about it kind of out of my own personal interest. Mm. I want to learn about my community and its history. And basically everybody that I asked said yes. Yep. They said, <laughs> you know, their relative worked at home. They didn't work at a factory. You know, some had family members or family friends who worked from factories, mm. but many of them told me that their grandma or their auntie or whatever did the majority of this sewing from their own homes. And that got me really curious as to why that was. It must have been, yeah, a bit of a surprise at the sort of the universality of, of, of that experience. Yeah, and I, you know, I had no idea what an outworker was. I had vaguely heard of the concept um, due to Alice Pung's book um, and she had talked about it at various events. Mm-hmm. So I had kind of known about this like hidden workforce in the back of my mind, but I hadn't connected the dots and seen how the Vietnamese community had been involved in that. Um, and one of my closest friends who I grew up with you know, had never told me what her parents did. And it was like maybe 12 years later after knowing her that she revealed to me that her mother sewed from home for the majority of her life and continued to do so at the time. I sensed that there was a little bit of shame from my friend about what her mum did and I didn't see anything wrong with it, but I did sense this odd sense of shame and, and secrecy around the job. What about you, Kim? How did you get involved in this? Through Emma reaching out to me as a friend on my Instagram actually, and also part of a small creative community that we're both a part of. But I have a very personal connection to Outwork 
because I was babysat um, in the homes of aunties and uncles who did mm. outwork. Obviously, it didn't have a name for me back then. They, it was just a very common occupation that I witnessed and didn't question. So it was very normal to see. And um, yeah, after school, my parents called in favours with even people they didn't really know. And just by word of mouth, I would end up in lots of different homes that looked very similar, surrounded by piles of clothing. A lot of sewing going on. A lot of sewing. Um, Yeah, the kids looked after themselves, really. And then the adults did their thing, whatever they needed to do. And yeah, it was a very welcoming environment and very familiar. That's, Emma, one of the the more poignant things in the book is the stories of, of children I think you actually use the expression of, you know, wanting to be proximate to their parents, but their parents are spending 12 hours a day behind a sewing machine. Yeah, we definitely heard stories of kids, um, you know, just doing their homework uh, as close to their parents as possible while they were sewing or waiting up for their, you know, one person told me she waited up for her mum until midnight because she didn't want her mum to go to bed alone. Um, And she just felt so bad that her mum had to sew for 12 hours a day mm. by herself in the garage while she was at school and didn't have any company. When they then um, shared a bed, I think, is the conclusion of that story from a, an absent yeah. husband. Yes, she said she would read Harry Potter until her mum was ready to finish work and they'd go to bed together. This industry, at its height in the, in, in the period that you researched, and we're going back here before you know, the, the cuts in tariffs and so on that slowly but surely destroyed a lot of local manufacture in, in clothing and textiles. Can, we, can you paint a picture for us of just, just how big this was, how many people were involved, what sort of output? Yeah, so in the 60s, I believe um, manufacturing was a huge industry in Australia and clothing and textile manufacturing was one of the largest industries and employers. And then you had the case where slowly tariffs um, were being cut, which meant that imported clothing was cheaper. um, And that was certainly the case towards the late 70s. And that the effect of that was that many local factories ended up closing. Um, So hundreds of factories closed in the 80s. And uh, it was actually quite hard to find a secure uh, factory job as a sewing machinist then. But what was happening was that um, Australian brands still wanted to make some of their clothes in Australia because, you know, it was quicker. They could respond to trends a little bit quicker Mm. than if they manufactured overseas. So they kept a portion of the workforce here. And at the same time, they were competing on price against cheaper imports. So to cut down the retail price, they were trying to push the production costs lower and lower. And that's how we got to the point of using outworkers because outworkers generally were not paid as well as people who worked in factories. Um, They didn't get the the same benefits like super paid time off and that kind of thing. And were generally paid just at piece rates that were much, much lower than what you would get in a factory. Um, So the scale of outwork itself uh, was actually quite hard to track because the, the work was so hidden um, and many people who did outwork didn't list that as their occupation in the census. Right. So in 1977, I believe, the Garment Manufacturers Association had an estimate of 5,000 to 15,000 outworkers. And then in 1992, that jumped up to 60,000 outworkers. Wow. And by 1995, there were roughly 329,000 outworkers. And that is an estimate that was produced by the um, Australian Textiles Clothing and Fashion Union. So the 329,000 
figure is quite large, but that doesn't just include people who do outwork full time. That actually includes the hours that were contributed by children because children of outworkers definitely sewed and contributed to that household income. Um, and that includes uh, the time spent from friends and people who just helped out during peak seasons of clothing production. But certainly 300,000 is a huge number. Why was so much of this work picked up by, by Vietnamese immigrant communities? Oh, what, what was the path there to that sort of labour? I think fashion production and factory jobs in general historically have been, you know, the first place that immigrants can come to. There's a low barrier to entry. You know, you don't need to have a degree um, to do that kind of work. And then outwork, I think, just became so popular in the Vietnamese community it's one of those jobs that, you know, once someone gets into, they kind of, it's just word of mouth. Word and it, gets around. Yeah. It gets around. Yeah. And the other thing with Outwork is that you, you, all you need is money to buy the sewing machines and an overlocker. And then you can bring that home. You don't need to, and you can have your own business essentially. Um, it doesn't require too much of a startup cost. And people I know would, you know, borrow money from friends and family to make that happen. You mentioned, Emma, that, 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 that sense of, of shame for some. Uh, I wonder, Kim, when it, when it comes then to visiting and, and drawing, as you beautifully do, the, the people involved in these stories, what, what was the feeling that you got from them? Well, they were actually very surprisingly like kin for us. And I think the benefit of Emma and I being both Vietnamese, second generation Vietnamese, gave us an in and... They actually treated us a lot like family friends mm. as soon as we walked through their doors. A lot of the time we were sitting on the carpet floor of their living rooms. So I know that personally they told of a lot of their feelings of shame, but a lot of the time they were super candid with us. So we were lucky to get their stories in that way. Are you both fluent Vietnamese speakers? I really uh, wish I could I say. wish I could say that. <laughs> Used to be. I went to Vietnamese school every Saturday growing up for uh, about 15 years. And um, so we we used to be. Um, but with every year that goes by, <laughs> it's getting a bit worse. Were there some issues, uh, Emma, of, of translation to be grappled with? For sure. Um, I would say that generally mine and Kim's Vietnamese skills are better in terms of listening than speaking. So it's a good thing that most of the interviewing <laughs> requires listening. Um, but we did have to do quite a few calls to our parents and uh, even had Kim's mum come on as an interpreter for one interview. But yes, we certainly relied on family to translate um, a few things here and there for us afterwards. We mentioned shame as a word, but of course there, was, there, was, there were stories of great pride in the book as well. The story of a woman who sewed for Brooks Brothers and even popped to London. Tell us about that, Emma. Yeah, so this particular lady worked in what essentially was a sweatshop in Sydney back in the 90s. And that sweatshop pressured her to do so much work that she had to continue working after she left the factory. So at night time, her and her child and her husband would sew until 1am, 2am, whatever it took to get the job done and to meet her quotas. And she was consistently paid the same wage every week. So her child eventually... Um, encouraged her to get a minimum wage job and, and work elsewhere. But, you know, you'd think that with that quite traumatic experience of mm. <laughs> of working, you know, to working to the bone, really, that you would go on to resent the job that you wouldn't enjoy sewing. But 
you know, she's continued to work in the industry and continued to sew for brands um, when she migrated to America later on in life. And she had this moment when her child took her uh, to London on holiday and they walked past the Brooks Brothers store and she had been sewing for Brooks Brothers in America. Um, And she, you know, expressed her delight at seeing the store in real life. She kind of pointed and said, well, that's that's what I sew for. That's that's my brand. That's something, I mean, uh, um, amazingly touching in that pride and in, in the, the humility, the, the generosity of spirit amongst these workers. Yeah, we were, we were a little bit surprised actually to meet quite a few makers who still really, really loved the trade and who told us they'd do it until they, they died essentially because they couldn't imagine doing anything else. They'd sewed since they were in their 20s um, and they're now in their 50s. They think it's just in their blood. And, and Kim, the decision to make this such a richly illustrated book, the real graphic depiction of these stories, that's that's pretty important, I imagine. Mm, actually, it was a practical decision to start with because a lot of the interviewees wanted to remain anonymous and uh, wouldn't uh-huh. be comfortable having their photographs taken. So um, that was one of the reasons that prompted Emma to reach out to an illustrator. So... Yeah, the first and foremost reason was um, because there was no choice. Um, They had to be illustrated in order to have uh, faces to their anonymous names. And to have your sketches less confronting, as you say. Yeah, yes. So I did take reference photos during the interviews with permission and then, yeah, adapted it from there. What's been the the response, the reception from the the people you interviewed and and I guess the broader Vietnamese community to the book? Somewhat unsurprisingly, a few of the people that we interviewed couldn't make it to the launch of our book because they were working and we very much (laughs) respect that. Um, But I think the overwhelming response from people who've grown up in outworker families has been so amazing and we felt really touched by it. We've had quite a few people... Um, contact us directly and just say like, wow, I'd never thought about this period of my life, but it was, it was something that so many of us went through and they are just so glad to have it reflected and documented somewhere. It's a a beautifully evocative and emotionally rich, but also revelatory and, you know, factually, it's a, it's a wonderful combination in, in a slim volume. You'd both to be congratulated, I might say. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And I, I do want to add that it's not just a Vietnamese story. I mean, we zeroed in on the Vietnamese outworker because we have that personal connection and it is our community. But um, there were outworkers from quite a lot of different immigrant backgrounds. So I think, you know, if other people wanted to tell this story in their own community, mm. that's possible too. Has it changed the way you both look at clothing? Has it sort of opened the eyes a little bit on the fashion business? Yeah, I mean, I think, I hope that, you know, when people read this, that they understand just how much the human touch that goes into clothing, Mm. it is not machine made. There is a person at every step of the way and that is, there is care taken at every step of the way. So it's, it's definitely made me reflect on supply chains and made me think really hard about the lives of, of people who make what we wear every day. You know, that this is a job that can support them, but they give so much of their body and their energy to make what we wear. Look, thanks both and congratulations. Uh, Journalist Emma Doe, illustrator Kim Lamb. 
Uh, the book May Anya, it's working from home. Now, the first run of this is sold out, but she, you, you can pre-order uh, the, the forthcoming second edition. And it's, look, we'll put a link to it on the blueprint page of the Radio National website. Emma, Kim, thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. So happy to share this with you and your listeners. Very happy Thanks, that Jonathan. you did. <laughs> this is Blueprint, Radio National.